Good morning. So in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to think about this question and maybe talk with me a little bit about it. First question is, how do we know when we are blessed? How do you know when you've been blessed? And the second question is, how can we be a blessing for others? Now, this is kind of a tricky gospel lesson today because it has blessings. And then it has Jesus saying, but woe, or alas, or but you're going to be in trouble. And I think it's important to hear that as um, kind of a description of just how things are going to be if people are too self-centered. Like back where I live most of the time in the Midwest, if it gets cold and it's icy and the roads are coated, if somebody is driving 70 miles an hour and has a crash, it's not because God is punishing them. It's because they were driving 70 miles an hour on the ice. The sad part of it is they might take themselves out, but they might take somebody else out too. It's not punishment. Some people in the church are so eager to hear how God's going to punish for this and God's going to punish for that. But really, it's just how things are if you keep focused on yourself and don't think about God and other people. That's where the woes come in. So now, back to the question. How do we know that we are blessed? How Can you think of ways where you knew you felt really blessed? I remember once we talked about uh, riding horses is really a blessing, uh, and it makes us feel full. How Can you think of other ways that you know you feel blessed, or when you know you feel blessed? If COVID stops. <laughs> if COVID stops. Amen. Yeah. That is yeah. a blessing. Amen. The whole congregation says amen. <laughs> we're right with you. Absolutely. That will be a huge blessing if we can gather again, if we don't have if to mess with these. I'm sorry. Go ahead. The only way that COVID, I feel like, can stop is if anti-vaxxers didn't exist. <laughs> Well, the anti-vaxxers will have to learn a lesson, won't they? It's not the actual people themselves didn't exist. Because my grandma is slightly an anti-vaxxer, and I don't want her to not exist. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we don't we don't want anyone to be punished, not even the, the foolish person who's driving 70 miles an hour on the ice. But we know there are some things that kind of set us up for woe or disaster. So, yeah, I think that's that's a wonderful, we would be blessed if we knew that COVID was done with, or at least under control. So the next question is maybe a little bit more difficult. Maybe not. I don't know. How do we know that we are a blessing for other people? Or how could we be a blessing to other people? What are some things that you could do? That I could do specifically? Yeah, that you could do specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, give them Valentine's gifts? You know, passing out Valentine's gifts. Absolutely. When I went to a one-room country school, it was very important that everybody made Valentine's for everybody else. No one was excluded. Everyone was included. That's what my teacher said. If you're going to do, if you're going to pass out gifts in the classroom, you have to do it for everyone. And it took me three hours to do one gift. 
three hours to do one gift, but your teacher said to, to if you're going to pass out to one person, we have to pass out to everybody. That's right. Yeah. Can you think of another way that you could be a blessing? Um, help people? Yeah, just help people. Maybe you hold the door for somebody at the grocery store if the door needs holding. Or you get a cart for someone who's uh, having some difficulty getting a cart. Like Mother Teresa says, small things with great love. That's what's important. And whether we're seven or seventy, we can do small things with great love. And we can be a blessing then to other people, uh, just as we heard about in the lesson. So wonderful. Nice, nice talking to you. And we'll all pray that we can be blessed with COVID going away. So let's have a word of prayer together. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks that you are always with us. Help us to know that you are always with us and to live in a way that tells other people Jesus is with us always and loves us all. One and all. Amen. Thanks. Well, today's gospel lesson is incredibly complex. Did you notice? So fasten your seatbelts because we may encounter some turbulence as we work our way through this text. And we hope that the turbulence is from the Holy Spirit. That would be a good thing. So we can't disregard what happens just before today's lesson. It's, it's important, I think. Luke tells us that Jesus went up to the mountain to pray and was there all night. All night he continued in prayer to God, Luke says. And remember, Luke often has Jesus continuing in prayer. Then, when it was day, Luke says that Jesus called his disciples to him, and from them chose twelve, whom he named apostles. And then Luke provides us with their names. Next, Luke says Jesus came down from the mountain with his disciples and stood on a level place, which makes good sense, with a great crowd of both disciples and a multitude of people from all over the place, from Judea, from Jerusalem, and even the seacoast, Tyre and Sidon. These were people who came to listen to him and to be cured of their diseases. And the people who were troubled were cured, Luke says. And Luke uses the word where we get our words such as pediatric, psychiatric, referring to like specialties of physicians. So our Greek text would say that in a momentary action, Jesus doctored them. And this huge crowd is seeking to touch him because power came forth from him. Power, and it's the same Greek word where we get our word for, actually for dynamite or dynamic. There was power there. So point number one, in the first part before our lesson, point number one is this. When you spend time in prayer, there is a beneficent good power that is given. And people will notice, and sometimes people will be healed. After ministering to this multitude then, then Luke says Jesus lifted up his eyes to his disciples and begins to preach. 
I'm not sure how this might have happened since Jesus had been up all night in prayer on the mountain, called his disciples, walked down to a level place, and doctored a great multitude of people. From a human standpoint, I would think that Jesus would have been utterly exhausted. But in fact, after the doctoring, the preaching begins. So Jesus begins this sermon with what are typically known as beatitudes, from the Latin word beata, which means blessed. And he gives us the good news first. Although, really, some of it doesn't sound like it's all that much great news. What is blessed about being hungry or weeping or hated and reviled and excluded, even if it's for the sake of the Son of Man? In fact, these statements would seem to stretch our conception of blessedness beyond all credibility. You call that blessed? Perhaps, perhaps there's a regrettable part of this due to translation. In some versions, like I think the revised, new revised standard version actually has happy instead of blessed. First time I heard that, it was sort of like nails on the chalkboard. I said, you gotta be kidding. Because my perception is that in our culture, happiness is so often intended to uh, be part of gratification, of getting what it is you want. Not that there's anything wrong with gratification and getting what it is you want, if you're fortunate enough. But it's a bit like a three-year-old unwrapping multiple presents under the Christmas tree. You know, one gets unwrapped, and then we move on to the next one, and we unwrap that, and pretty soon we have a bunch of stuff lying around on the floor and a bunch of wrapping paper, and then the kid gets fussy. Got to be careful with rapid gratification, even though I would like to have some every so often. The word blessed that we heard so often actually comes from the Greek word makarios. And maybe some of you, I think a lot of us, are old enough to remember Archbishop Makarios on the island of Cyprus, who was the president of Cyprus back when there was conflict on that island. Remember all the conflicts? This is like 40 years ago, because some people in Cyprus wanted to affiliate with Greece, and of course there was, were Turkish people on the island of Cyprus, and the last thing was that they wanted was affiliating with the island of Greece. So Bishop Makarios had a very special name, I think. Um, in any case, Makarios, that word for blessed, has been used a long time, even in ancient and classic Greek, just not New Testament. And this is important because makarios in our text implies a blessedness in terms of being in touch with what is divine and transcendent. We just don't get that from using our word happy, and I'm not sure that we get that connotation from use of the word blessed either. But makarios says there's a connection that is implied here. There is a relationship, a relationship. So maybe Jesus is saying, people who are poor are in a better position to have an uncluttered relationship with what's divine, and what's truly important. Maybe that's why in so much of medieval culture, like at the time of St. Francis of Assisi, there was such a high value placed on the idea of poverty. So all of these clauses that are translated as blessed or happy, essentially are telling us the way things are now are not the way they are always going to be. So point number two, things are not always what they seem to be. Appearances 
may obscure a deeper reality, a deeper relationship. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, none of this, of course, should be seen as excusing the need to reach out to those who are impoverished. That kind of attitude that the church, particularly in the Middle Ages, put forth, well, don't worry about your current status because after all, in the sweet by and by, you'll be rewarded. So don't try to change the social order now. That kind of attitude is what Karl Marx had in mind when he said religion was the opiate of the people. That's not what we want. But this text is rather to say, Jesus saw in many people who were not all that fortunate, and remember in Jesus' time, riches were seen as a sign of God's favor. Jesus saw in people who were not that fortunate an ability to relate to what was truly important, rather than relating only to the passing material realm. So in five sentences, Jesus lifts up the poor, honors their integrity, while also, while also providing reassurance that their material needs would be satisfied and that their weeping would be turned to joy. Things are not always what they seem to be. Appearances may obscure a deeper reality. I remember years ago, on CBS Sunday morning, they were doing interviews with Vietnamese refugees, so you know how long ago this was. And there was a pretty ramshackle house in South Dallas, and the big family, Vietnamese family, was sitting out in front of what looked to be a dirt yard, and they had this chicken that uh, looked pretty sorry. Uh, it didn't look like a really uh, big bird that would feed a bunch of people. Their circumstances were so rough, and yet, as the camera panned the crowd, they were laughing, they were joking, they were happy. Maybe because of the relationships that they had, that wasn't just a relationship to their stuff. Then, abruptly, we hear words from Jesus that are provided only by Luke, not by Matthew. We've had the good news first, even though it didn't sound all that good on the surface. Now we're going to get the bad news. And we begin with a series of four sentences in opposition to the sentences that we've heard before. Instead of blessing, it's woe to. And this phrase, by the way, can be translated also as something like alas, which makes these verses seem less of an imposition of ill will. I want us to try to step away always from the idea that God is going to get you for this or God is going to get you for that. Um, there are plenty of examples in Scripture where God does seem to punish sin, especially among the Israelite children in the, in the desert. But remember, St. Paul said, the wages of sin is death. It's what you get. He didn't say the punishment of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. You live in this way, it's a way that makes for death. I'm fairly convinced that God doesn't have to punish sin. We do a fine job of it with ourselves. So when we hear these idea of woe, please try to disengage from the idea that this is some kind of a threat from the Almighty. It's a statement, rather, of when you live like this, here's the results you're going to have. So this can be translated as alas. 
less of an imposition of ill will and more like just the state of affairs. This is not going to work out well for people who live this way, just like driving 70 miles an hour on the ice isn't going to work for you. So, for example, Jesus might be saying, Alas to those of you who are rich, for you have received your consolation already. He may also be saying, So, folks, you think you have it made? I may have told you these stories before, but I worked down in Sun City for a while. It was an incredibly instructive part of my career, working in crisis counseling. And I would get people who were grieved. There was so much loss of spouse or significant other. And we would work our way slowly and gently through that. And then many times, not always, but many times for these people who'd lost their spouse, there came a time when someone else sort of seemed to be coming into the picture. And they would be happy that someone else might be coming into the picture. And so we would talk about that. But it was not infrequent that people would be saying, I, I, think, I think this may work out. I think there's really a chance for happiness. I, I think it's really me they value, or are they just after my money? So their thrice holy sacred money was holding them back for a potential for joy and happiness. I'm not saying you shouldn't have prenuptial agreements. That's not what I'm saying. But it was dramatic to me to see. These were people who had a lot of funds on deposit. So maybe this woe is saying, well, you can buy almost everything except what's most important. My niece, for several years, was a nanny to some very, very well-to-do people by my standards up in Marin. The guy had some type of tech innovation that he sold, created and sold, and it wasn't the millions, it was with a B. They had everything. As I heard the stories, it was like they couldn't think of how to indulge themselves next. I'm not making this up. They played Mozart to their vegetable garden. Now, I got nothing against Mozart. <laughs> and nothing against the vegetable garden. But it's like, what can we do to indulge ourselves? And the mother told my niece, let's say, they had a little girl. Let's say her name was Penelope. And the mother told my niece, now, Penelope is to have everything that she wants. And I thought to myself at the time, apparently everything except her mother's time. I, I think the woe then, the alas, is to those who have everything and never gave a thought to those who have nothing. Like the rich man and Lazarus. That's a text from Luke 2. And we'll have to fasten our seatbelts on that one. The woe is to those who, like Jeremiah said, make mere flesh their strength. That's the woe. So, in my Greek Testament, it seems almost that Jesus could be saying something of a play on words when he starts talking about woe, because he says, plenty of woe to those of you who have plenty, because you have already. It's a bit like saying, your cup is full, and there's no room. 
for the Holy Spirit to pour in anything else. Then the word that is translated as consolation, that word, hang in here with me, I have to do this. And you can look up these words too in your lexicon. That word that's consolation can be translated like this. It can be the calling upon, the exhortation, the excitement, the persuasion, the instruction, the entreaty, the earnest supplication, the solace, the consolation, cheering and supporting influence, joy, gladness, cheer, enjoyment. See, that really bends the meaning of the word consolation, doesn't it? It bends and extends that meaning. And I think it's important to look at these words because in my feeble attempts to look at the original text, I'm simply not sure that we can wrap our English thinking mind around all the meanings that are in this text. I ran across a prayer just this last week from Pastor Lori Eaton. She's an ELCA pastor, and she wrote, let us be wise with what we know and be humble with what is beyond our understanding. And so sometimes when we confront a text like this, we just got to be humble and know that there's more there than probably the Holy Spirit could ever manage to reveal to us. But what is fairly clear from this text is that people who have everything now will eventually find their world turned upside down. Point number three, in this world, in this world, everything changes and ends. And the good news of incarnate transcendent love turns everything upside down. That's why I told you to fasten your seatbelts. We may be hanging from the ceiling. Ultimately, then, I would hope that we can see these words of Jesus not as prescriptive, but as descriptive. In other words, here is how things are now, but that's not how they have to be. We are even more fortunate than the original hearers of this sermon, for we know, in fact, that Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who sleep as the old King James would have it. We're in a better position now than those folks who first heard those words from Jesus, although that would have been an unspeakably wonderful experience. Accordingly, we can give thought to this. Shall we find ourselves on the side of the blessed or on the side of the alas? We can do nothing regarding our justification because that work has been done for us. But we can do much to advance the sanctification of our relationships with one another and with this whole creation. We got work to do. We have the example of Jesus spending the night, all night in prayer on the mountain. Henry Nowen writes that prayer helps us discern which of our activities are indeed for the glory of God and which are primarily for the glory of our unconverted egos. Our activities for the glory of ego will pass away, but activities for the glory of God will and do endure. In this world, everything changes and ends. But hear these beautiful words from Revelation. It's one of my favorite texts from Revelation. John the Revelator writes, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, 
Blessed are the dead from now on who die in the Lord. Yes, saith the Spirit, for they will rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Their deeds, their works do follow them. They do make a difference. We may never know the good that we have done by a simple act of kindness. Is that not true? We may never know the good that we have done by an enormous self-sacrifice. But we do know, we know that if there is weeping now, joy comes in the morning. Where there is hunger, there will be satisfaction. And for those who are poor now, the kingdom of God is theirs. May the Holy Spirit call us to bring about that vision of blessedness, connection, and relationship, and thereby may the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven.